Welcome to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast, leading the way in the business of medicine. Now here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello everyone and welcome to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast. I'm your host, Terry Fletcher. The EDGE podcast is brought to you today by the National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants. Our goal is to discuss healthy business principles, have conversations on the business side of medicine so that you and your practice can thrive, be profitable, and successful for years to come. Today we will focus on fee-for-service medicine, which is the method in which physicians and other healthcare providers are paid for each service they perform, along with successful front desk collections. Tackling those topics with me today is David Zetter, president of Zetter Healthcare, located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. David has been in the healthcare industry for over 30 years. He is a current president and executive board member of the NSCHBC and is a certified business consultant, certified compliance consultant, and like myself, has many certifications in medical coding. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Terry. Pleasure to be here. Okay, so today we really want to just tackle this fee-for-service medicine stuff, you know, I I wanted to dive into it because being, a, being in an election year and a lot of the politics we've been dealing with, it seems like healthcare discussions have been all over the news. And you've heard, you know, some of the pundits out there wanting Medicare for all, socialized medicine, and then back to private insurance. What are your thoughts on fee-for-service medicine and is it here to stay? Well, um, that question gets asked quite a bit, um, and often I am interviewed and asked that question of me, and my comment has always been this. Um, Fee-for-service is not going away. Um, It's not going to go away in my lifetime and probably not my children's lifetime. Um, Yes, we do have the advent of value-based payment programs and things of that nature, But that does not mean it's going to take over and fee-for-service is going to go away completely. Um, In my mind, it is impossible to remove fee-for-service completely. Uh, Bundled payments, value pay uh, propositions, things of that nature can be done and they're being, they're, you know, proliferating and multiplying and so on. But from the standpoint on being able to pay everyone for all services that way, that's just not feasible. It, it's just not possible. Um, I don't have the answers in order to come up with a system that allows that type of complete payment system. But uh, in the current situation that we're in, in the healthcare industry, how providers have been reimbursed in the past, um, yes, value-based, uh, reimbursement propositions are being developed and being implemented, but there, I just do not see how you can reimburse everything under that type of a reimbursement system. Um, I think fee-for-service is here to stay for a long time, although a larger portion of the healthcare revenue uh, will be turned or, or will be obtained through either a value-based uh, proposal or some type of advanced payment system uh, other than fee-for-service. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you on that. The one thing I've noticed, though, is that it seems like as soon as we get paid, for example, you know, I'm heavy into cardiology, and we used to have five 
CPT codes that represented one service. And then as soon as the RUC committees figure that out in Medicare, they collapse the code. So now it's one code. You know, remember the uh, the echo with Doppler and color flow. Now it's one code. Do you think that even though we are fee for service that we're going to end up having one code for, you know, one code fits all? Or do you think that won't that won't happen? Well, I think um, I agree with you. You know, more and more. I mean, the AMA comes out with different codes and then things get bundled together. Uh, I think that's going to continue to happen where it's feasible. Um, it just makes sense in order to try and streamline the healthcare system, make it more efficient, uh, save, you know, the Medicare trust fund as well as just uh, healthcare revenue um, across the board. Uh, I think that's going to continue to happen. But again, there's going to be limits to it. You can't do it on everything. You're not going to come up with, a, you know, a one size fits all CPT code for, you know, all your services. Uh, we're never going to get to the point uh, I shouldn't say never. I've learned in my lifetime not to do yeah, that too often. Exactly. But um, from the standpoint on, you know, will we ever get to the point where, hey, you see a patient, you get a flat fee, that type of thing. Um, it may happen sometime down the road in 100 or 200 years. Uh, I certainly don't need to worry about it. And I don't think anyone that's going to be listening to this podcast uh, that's alive at this point needs to worry about something like that. We're a long ways from something like that occurring. We'll have to have a massive switch in the healthcare industry in order for that to even take place. And and I think that's comforting, you know, to know that, you know, there are still profitable ways to, or I should say ways to make your, uh, your practice profitable without having that concern. And, you know, it actually brought up or kind of triggered a, a comment that I hear a lot where I think... And these, this may be for people that just kind of don't understand how the health system works or maybe just are concerned at the fact of how much money they're spending for health care. And so it could be twofold. But, you know, I, I mean, I obviously I'm a proponent of the fee for service because I think physicians in this country anyway should definitely get paid for what they do. And just a, a quick side note, you know, when, when my daughter was younger, we had a, uh, an au pair that would come and, you know, we get, we have them for every year because I travel so much. And many would come from, you know, out of country or out, should I say, out of this country, and they had socialized medicine. And one of them in particular, she uh, came from Armenia, and she had asked if she could um, transfer some of her money we paid her into a cashier's check because her mother was having gallbladder surgery. And I said, oh, I, but you're in Romania. That's socialized medicine. Doesn't the government pay for that? She goes, well, kind of. What they told her was that if you want it done the way we do it, then it's, yes, it's covered under your, under what we do here. But if you want it done right, and those are the terms they use, then you need another, an extra thousand American dollars. And I don't want to get to that point in this country. So that's why I'm really hoping that what you're saying is, is true and that people realize that once we get to socialized medicine, we may lose some of the, the good physicians. Oh, I don't disagree with you. Um, socialized medicine, I mean, think of it this way. Um, you've got countries that have socialized medicine um, in most of those countries, and I'm not going to pretend that I'm an expert on every country's uh, health system or, or even to spout off about a specific country. But the fact is, is that in many countries that have socialized medicine, 
Um, you've got the physicians out there, whether they're specialists or primary care. Um, in many cases, they have a set salary. So the state or the government is paying them. They're employed by the government. And they have a set salary uh, in some of those cases. And those salaries are decent. Obviously, some of those physicians can live very well uh, on those salaries. But it, there is no incentive in socialized medicine for anyone to uh, outperform somebody else or to improve things. Uh, there's no incentive to do better, to provide better care to the patient uh, or anything like that. Um, now, there may be some systems that have some incentives built into that. Um, again, I don't claim to know all of them, but in order for the system to work appropriately from the patient's standpoint, there needs to be some kind of incentive there in order for the provider to do better and to communicate properly with the patient and to create coordinated care and, and so on. Um, we have a lack of that right now in our current system. Uh, there will probably be a lack of that in any system that we develop or morph into in the future. Um, there is no perfect system out there and nobody has the complete answer. Um, so I believe that our current healthcare system is one of the best in the world. Uh, I think there are a lot of flaws in it, but I think if we keep working at it, we can develop a better system. Um, and with all the brains that are working on this in this country, I think we can definitely develop a better system. Um, and we're currently working towards that now. We don't know what that's going to look like. But at some point in time, um, you know, we're going to realize that we've made significant changes to the healthcare system. Hopefully it's for the better. Uh, but we're on that journey now. We've been on that journey since the beginning of time. And it is always going to morph into a different system or process. It all depends on the laws that are uh, propagated and communicated to the public and exactly what patients want. That's also going to help define healthcare in the future. More and more patients are going to have a say um, as transparency comes out, as patients be given more power, as they're having to spend more money out of their own pockets, they're going to start making choices very similar as they do when they decide where they're going to eat each evening. Uh, if they're eating out, they will make choices based on reviews that are out there, based on ratings that the government and other commercial payers do, based on quality measures, based on many different criteria, including transparency, Will it, whereby at some point, every provider's uh, charges is going to need to be posted. I mean, we already have one state that requires that now. Florida requires your major charges to be posted in on a wall or somewhere where the public can see it in your facility. So I think that's going to be coming sooner rather than later to everyone, especially given the current administration's efforts to get transparency out there. And I think it's just going to keep moving no matter what administration we vote into office. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that one of the things with fee-for-service uh, medicine, which it's back and forth. I mean, I think that 
Some people think mm -hmm. that, you know, it gives an incentive for physicians to provide more treatments because payment is dependent on quality, quantity of care instead of quality. But then they're, you know, now with the pay for performance and with MIPS and MACRA in improving health care, it's, you know, some of the, um, the effectiveness or how that's doing the, you know, some people think that's kind of a mixed conclusion. And so, you know, when patients also are shielded from, or I should say, when there's no out of pocket from them, and this is something that I, I don't want to say argue the point, but I definitely have conversations with, with people about, uh, as far as patients not having to pay their out of pocket, that can cause basically excessiveness. And, you know, if everything is free and you just get to walk in and it's like, you know, take one, then sometimes you can have services that are not medically necessary and then that bankrupts the system. So trying to also convey that with what's going on during the pandemic and, you know, some of the things that have been said about what you can waive and out of pocket for a patient versus not. Um, I think that that has been just really confusing for a lot of practices and they need to make choices that not only keep their practice viable, but also I think that, and you can speak to this, David, I think that a lot of practices miss that a healthy practice and a patient's health care and their overall health also includes their financial plan in the office. It's not just about treating them. It's also about them understanding their responsibility for what they need to pay, what they need to contribute. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, I've been speaking about this for years. I've, uh, you know, I came from a different industry into healthcare care uh, more than 25 years ago. And in that industry, it's all about, you know, collecting the money up front. Well, that has never been the process in healthcare. It's always been chasing money. We are a reactive industry. We've been that way forever. The revenue cycle process was set up way back in time when Marcus Welby practiced medicine, and it hasn't changed uh, almost one iota since then. So revenue cycle has to change. And part of that change starts with a financial policy that you draft up and you make the patients aware of what their responsibilities are. Um, revenue cycle needs to be turned on its head and be proactive versus reactive. Everything we do is about chasing the money. So we hire collection agencies where we, you know, end up having up to 50% of our revenue skimmed off the top uh, by a company that's trying to collect that money. Um, you've got billing agencies that just submit claims that automatically take 6% off the top of your revenue um, just for pushing a button for the most part. Um, so from that standpoint, uh, I really think that we need to do a better job of being proactive on revenue cycle and we would have a lot less practices uh, being bought up by hospitals, health systems, going out of business, uh, physicians wondering how the, he how the heck they're going to pay payroll. I mean, in this pandemic environment that we're currently in, you know, everyone's experiencing a lot of problems and challenges with finances. Uh, but if you set up your revenue cycle properly from the get-go, or if you finally make that decision, hey, I'm not going to take it anymore, and I'm going to change the way we do business, um, and it is all about change, uh, then you can actually set your practice up to be more proactive. All you've got to do is start at the beginning, develop prop proper policies and procedures for revenue cycle, right down to how often your staff collects uh, insurance cards and takes copies of them to validate it, whether you keep a credit card on file in order to set up payment plans 
the day you meet the patient for the first time, rather than, you know, trying to call them on the back end of a claim adjudication and trying to collect the patient balance. I mean, everyone knows you've got staff sitting in an office during the day calling patients at home. They don't answer. You leave messages. They ignore their statements. They don't return phone calls. We're chasing money and it's costing you time and effort and you're not collecting that high a percentage of that revenue or that accounts receivable that's due to you. So why not set all that up in advance at the very beginning and get rid of the entire backing of the old fashioned revenue cycle process that never worked? Yeah, I agree. I think one thing that was really tough uh, during the pandemic, this may have happened to you. So when all this first started, you know, so let's go back to March for a little bit. And this was hard for me because I know that well-intentioned, um, you know, talking heads, politicians, whatever you want to call them. I remember sitting at my kitchen table, TV on, listening to one of the COVID um, press conferences. And all of a sudden I hear a couple of professionals and they're up there and they're saying, so um, any senior that needs to get treatment right now under telehealth will not have an out-of-pocket. And I looked up and went, wait, what? And I read the CARES Act and I was like, that's, that's not accurate. Because what was accurate was if it's COVID related. <laughs> so if it was COVID related for testing, you had COVID or anything that had to do with the virus with, you know, during the, this whole thing, then yes, that was where the physician under Medicare would get paid the hundred percent of allowable, meaning that the patient couldn't be billed and wouldn't be billed for their share of cost for those services. But what patients heard, and this that wasn't their fault was that during the pandemic, and telehealth was all free and they didn't have to pay for it. And so a lot of practices didn't realize when they started getting their EOBs and money coming in that that 20% or that out of pocket, the patient sheriff's cost was still coming out of their payment. And they said, well, I thought that this was that. And I said, well, if you, you one of the things I try to educate practices on is when you hear something, you still need to research it. You still need to make sure that what you hear on TV, on social media, anything that's posted, then go do your own due diligence and research what the reality is so that you have it in writing and then you bring it to your patients and your practice and say, okay, so here's the reality of that. We're still going to have to charge you your out-of-pocket if it's not COVID-related. And I know I had a lot of practices that said, before we did anything, we wanted to wait to hear what you said. But on the flip side, I had practice said, no, we heard that everything is now free for the patient. I said, well, is that what you're experiencing? And they're saying, no, now we're finding that we are only paid, you know, the contracted rate. And now the patient doesn't want to pay out of pocket. So how do you deal with that with your clients, David? Well, um, I agree with you that there were some challenges and obviously anything that's communicated. Uh, I mean, this pandemic has been a perfect example. Uh, government does not communicate well, has never communicated well. They always put the cart before the horse, and there's always going to be changes to whatever they initially communicate uh, because they always jump the gun. So as long as you are aware of that, then you won't be disappointed. From the standpoint on how we're dealing with it, I mean, so here's some other challenges you have, is that, yes, the government communicated that, that you wouldn't have any out-of-pocket expense for covid uh, services. The problem is, is that not all health insurance is created equal. What about self-funded plans where the employer self-funds their health insurance? 
Well, not all bets are off on the government cannot mandate what gets done with those plans. The employer does. So the employer decides what's going to get paid for and what isn't going to get paid for. And if it's a self-funded plan by an employer, meaning that technically they don't have insurance that comes from Blue Cross Blue Shield or from Humana or whoever it is, it's a self-funded plan. The employer makes all those decisions. They may have a third-party administrator, such as either Blue Cross Blue Shield or Cigna or Aetna or somebody like that that administers their claims payments, their the processing of claims, you know, uh, patient claims, all that kind of stuff, um, whereby the employer is going to make those decisions. So again, to your point, Yes, there may be news out there that is communicated, but you really have to do the due diligence to first find out whether your health insurance is even cut, even uh, pertains to certain regulations or laws that were communicated. Because in many cases, there are plenty of opportunities where an employer does their own self-funding of their health insurance. Um, and more and more are starting to do that because there are cost savings. Now, you have to have an organization that is very well-funded, cash-rich, um, has a, a program set up for this. Most often, it's set up offshore um, in order to manage it properly. Um, but there are many opportunity or many situations where that occurs. And there are a lot of patients out there that are getting confused because technically, the government has communicated that there's no out-of-pocket expense, but their health plan uh, doesn't conform to the requirements in order to meet uh, the regulations, uh, re regulation requirements, I guess. Yeah, and you've also brought up a really good point. We had a situation here in California, and I know some people are also dealing with that in other places. I don't know in Pennsylvania where you're based, but we have a lot of governor executive orders, and they were, they were putting things out there, and I know my governor is kind of executive order happy out here, and he was putting things out there that were required by, he said, you know, you if you were United Healthcare, if you were Blue Cross or whatever the healthcare plan was, that you had to cover telehealth. Well, he had a lot of pushback because those plans said we might do business in California, but we're not based in California. So whatever your you know governor is saying we have to do, we don't personally have to do it. And that was about 50% of the payers. They're like, we're not based here. We actually based in Texas, and that's not one of the orders there. So I think that there's, there's kind of like a, this fallacy out there that just because one of the political heads says this is, you know, rules, you have to actually, again, go back and look at your, your policies, look at who's administrating the plan. Like you said, look at the employer policies and just make sure, and this is to our audience, make sure you are researching it and you have it in writing what is accurate because otherwise you're going on hearsay. And just like I'm dealing with telehealth right now, you have to make sure that you can withstand any kind of review or audit or back up how you're reporting your claims. Otherwise, you will find that it could come back on the back end and, and hurt you. Yeah, agree. 
So and going back to the fee-for-service, one of the things that I think that uh, physicians, especially starting out, and I know, David, you're a big um, proponent, a consultant, and this is really what you do in, in getting um, successful physicians up and running and, and, you know, where they need to start. And I know a lot of physicians and providers out there when they're coming out of school or coming out of a, let's say, a, a big organization and they want to really go on their own, they need advice on where to start as far as setting up their office and if they want to be a single practitioner versus maybe just with a partner. What would your advice be above and beyond the obvious office visit encounters? What would your advice be as far as cost effectively bringing in a diagnostic into the office? Let's just take cardiology as a specialty just so that they can show that or I should say add some revenue to their practice but also medically necessary services. Well, um, from my standpoint, um, right now, I mean, I've been a big proponent uh, for quite a while of telemedicine and telehealth, um, simply because it provides more access to the patients. Um, and with the pandemic, you know, that was that kind of forced our hand to embrace telehealth and telemedicine. Um, at least it, it forced the hand for many providers in trying to retain some sort of revenue in order to keep their practice going. Um, I'm a big proponent of that. I think it's a benefit to not only the practice and the patient uh, because it provides additional access to the patient. Uh, it provides a convenience not only to the patient but to the staff and to the practice and physicians. Um, it does provide additional revenue and for many specialists and primary care, um, whether you're doing remote patient monitoring of Holter monitors, blood pressure, diabetes, um, even, you know, um, in some cases, dialysis, sleep medicine. I mean, there are so many types of equipment and mo remote monitoring devices that can be done now. Um, and then on top of that, you've got transitional care, chronic care management. I mean, there is so much revenue out there. Um, I was having a conversation with a colleague a couple of weeks ago, and we were discussing, you know, preventive care, preventive services, remote patient monitoring, and, you know, Medicare publishes data out there on charges that are submitted to Medicare. Now, again, it's only Medicare, uh, but when you look at Medicare that's willing to pay 100% of preventive care services, and you've got providers, um, a ton of my clients, that don't provide any of these services. They don't push it. Um, you know, the annual wellness visits, the welcome to Medicare visits. I mean, all of this stuff is paid 100%. And when you actually go through, I can pull the data down on any provider and any practice and find out exactly how many Medicare patients they have, how many Medicaid patients they have, how many dual eligible patients they have, and then look at whether they're billing any of the CPT codes that have to do with transitional chronic care management, remote patient monitoring, any of this, and find all the missing revenue that that practice could have had with the patients that are registered to their practice. I mean, it is mind numbing the amount of revenue that people are just bypassing simply because either, frankly, they're lazy they don't know how to do it, they're not aware of it, 
Um, they, who knows? Maybe they're just afraid that they don't have the staff to do it. I mean, there is so much revenue that can be brought into a practice whereby the actual physician and owners don't have to do a lot of the work. You can do it just by simply hiring an additional MA, um, a nurse, something like that. So your overhead is much less expensive than a provider having to provide these services. Um, in some cases, there's documentation or actual services that the, you know, the physician or you know, uh, ancillary staff or an advanced practice clinician will have to perform some of those services. But in most cases, a lot of the documentation of services does not have to be provided by them. And we're talking a ton of revenue. I conducted this analysis on one physician in a practice of eight physicians. And that single provider, all the services that were missing, preventive care, chronic care management. Now, this is a primary care physician. Um, you know, he doesn't have a ton of Medicare patients. If I recall, there were somewhere around a total of about 1,100 patients that were basically registered to him as the PCP. Well, out of all those patients, there was more than $275,000 in revenue that was never billed for those services. Now, even if you did 50% of that, or let's just say 25% of that, I mean, that's still almost, I mean, you're talking about over $75,000 there at even 25% of it. Yeah, so that's an awful lot of revenue to just throw away. Yeah, no, I agree. I've had the same thing happen. I've had, you know, I've tried to talk about the care management services and we will have an episode to the listeners out there on really talking about and diving into care management and giving you some um, tips and toolkits to, to really get that going. But just on care management services, I've had practices saying they just don't have time to set it up and, and so forth. And I keep bugging them. I bug them every couple of months about it. And these are clients. And then when I get the, those clients that are saying, okay, Terry, set us up, let us know what we need to do. And so then recently I decided to basically do a comparison. I said, so just so you know, to one client, I said, I've been bugging you every quarter to set up this care management and I'm, <laughs> I'm not seeing it and you're saying that you don't have time. Well, I set up another client that did and so far they're up to collected revenue, not just billables of over 200,000. So just letting you know, you're letting this money just sit there and because I audit this big group, uh, that has over a hundred physicians, I'm seeing the diagnoses, I'm seeing the chronic patients. I said, you know, you've got patients that could benefit from this because your readmissions into the hospital are terrible right now. So remember that not only that, you get credit on your value-based care and on your surveys patient takes, patients take and, you know, your MIPS. I mean, it really helps you down the road. I don't think some practices understand the domino effect of some of these value-added services. It's not just revenue. It's also about best practices. And we know that, I don't think, I don't know if our listeners realize, but sometimes getting recontracted with a payer, especially a, uh, a payer that is a, a management company for a payer, they look at um, surveys from patients. They don't necessarily, a lot of the patients want to know, do you offer, like, like David was saying, telehealth, do you offer extra services for them? And it's amazing how when you take the top 10 reasons that a payer re-signs a physician to a contract, 
Sometimes number eight is about the actual doctor, but the first, the first seven are about what you offer. And so, you know, we really need to step up and see what's out there and listen to your consultants. You know, David and I both are consultants out there that are trying to really not only make sure that you have the understanding to be profitable, to bring this information to you so that you can withstand long term as a physician, but to thrive in your practice. And I think that success comes with understanding what's available to you. Yep, absolutely. I think you definitely need to be aware of your practice, what opportunities there are, um, you know, conduct a SWOT analysis, uh, determine what your strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats are. And I mean, under opportunities, there is, uh, I always get asked the question, what can I do to add revenue to my practice? Um, there are so many opportunities there. It is much easier than you think it is. Um, you know, take little bites. When you think about implementing chronic care management, it isn't that difficult. It truly isn't. And it, all you need is just, you know, even somebody to assist you to do the implementation. It will pay off in piles of revenue. Um, and I'm not exaggerating. It doesn't take that much cost to implement these programs. Um, and the you know, the return on your investment is tenfold. So I, you know, I optimistically advise anyone listening to this podcast, you really take a look at the revenue opportunities you have in your practice. Um, it's all about keeping independent practices in place, viable, and a going concern for the future because we need those independent practices. Um, we need to have physicians that have clarity that can make decisions on their own and aren't advised by a healthcare system or insurance company on how to care for the patient. Uh, even though that happens on a daily basis, uh, we still need individual providers out there making those educated decisions based on their training and education and providing good quality care to the patients out there. And I think you have an opportunity to make a bigger impact when you're providing the services that are needed, requested, and basically communicated that they're gonna be paid for in full by the government. And why not ensure that your patients are aware of this and ensure that your practice can reap the benefits of providing those services to the patients. It's a benefit to both the practice and the patient. I agree. And I think with that, we're going to go ahead and end today. There's going to be more coming soon. Please follow us and let us know what you think. And also make sure that you visit the nschbc.org website for more information on, inf on how to have a successful practice and making sure that you are profitable for years to come. Thank you to David Zetter, again, president of Zetter Healthcare and our president of the NSCHBC for joining us today. Thank you very much, Terry. Okay, everyone, make it a great day and a great week, and thank you for listening to the Edge Podcast. Thank you for listening to the NSCHBC Edge Podcast. Join us on the second Tuesday of each month as our consultants tackle the complexities of navigating the business of medicine. You can reach us on the web at nschbc.org, the National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants.